Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to a very hot Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Oh, the insanity, the humanity. Anyway, the air conditioning unit here at the um, at the studio isn't working. I think I've said enough. You get the picture. Anyway, we're glad to be with you on this Monday afternoon. James Blend producing Dave King engineering. I tell you, if this if you are you know thinking about how important heaven is and staying out of the other place, just come by the studios of KPDQ and you will be inspired to open the scriptures and begin to study. Anyway, I'm glad to have you with us. We'll be uh, sharing a classic conversation I had with David Clausen in the second hour of today's program. And we'll look at Abraham Lincoln's painful message to the pro-life movement. We'll put that into context later in the program. Also want to give you a heads up tomorrow on the program. We'll be talking with Aaron Burke. He's with Radiant Church. Uh, that's in Tampa Bay. Uh, his book is Unfair Advantage, Seven Keys um, from the Life of Joseph for transforming any obstacle into an opportunity. That's coming up on tomorrow's program. So I wanted to give you a heads up on that. We'll begin by taking a look at some of the day's headlines, beginning with the Biden transition team and Secret Service. Apparently, they were tipped off. An FBI supervisory special agent told congressional investigators that the Biden transition team and Secret Service uh, headquarters were tipped off in December back in 2020 about a planned interview with Hunter Biden, a tip off that resulted in the interview of then president elect Joe Biden's son, not ever taking place at all, even while he was labeled the target of a years long federal investigation. The agent who worked for the FBI for more than two decades retired from the bureau last year, participated in a transcribed interview under oath behind closed doors at the House Oversight Committee last month. Representative Dean Phillips, a Democratic lawmaker, is inviting colleagues to challenge President Biden. He said anybody who wants to run to challenge President Biden for the 24 presidential uh, uh, primary, the Democratic uh, primary nomination, should take the chance. Phillips was speaking on Meet the Press on NBC on Sunday that he adores Biden but wants him to pass the torch to a new leader. I would like to see a moderate governor. Uh, governor, yes, hopefully from the heartland, from one of our four states, the Democrats will need, he said. He continued, anybody who wants to run, Joe Manchin, Cornell West, that's why we have primaries, because that doesn't undermine the likelihood of returning, in this case, a Democrat to the White House. I'm actively inviting, encouraging, to some degree, imploring that people who are ready and know it's probably time to do so, take the chance. He's imploring Democrats. Meanwhile, um, Alan Dershowitz says that the special counsel is a violation or in violation, chiming in on the appointment of Hunter Biden's special counsel. A prominent Harvard Law professor is warning that the U.S. attorney leading that investigation is in clear violation of the Department of Justice's regulations. It's illegal, he says. The regulation provides clearly that special counsel have to come from outside the government for good reason. What's so special about a special counsel is that he does or she doesn't have to answer to the present administration. He's independent. The Harvard University law professor emeritus Alan Dershowitz said on Morning with Maria on Monday. I like the alliteration there. Uh, but if you have uh, somebody who serves at the pleasure of the attorney general and obviously as the U.S. attorney serves his pleasure as part of the administration, that person shouldn't be serving. He went on to say, isn't it? Uh, it's clear, a clear violation of the regulation itself. We'll see where that goes. 
Meanwhile, the death toll from the devastating wildfires in Lahaina, Hawaii, on the island of Maui, has risen to 96, with search and rescue teams still looking through the charred remains of scorched buildings for any sign of hundreds of people still missing from the deadliest U.S. wildfire in more than 100 years. Firefighters are still working to contain flare-ups and extinguish the wildfires that broke out nearly a week ago with the up-county Kula fire now at 60% containment and Lahaina fire at 85% containment and the uh, uh, Kihai fire at 100% containment. However, officials stress that even if and when a fire is 100% contained, it doesn't mean it's extinguished. It only means that firefighters have the blaze entirely surrounded by a perimeter inside of which uh, it can continue to burn. The fire will only be declared extinguished when firefighters believe nothing is left burning. So continue to pray for and support the efforts of those who lived in those communities. The Georgia DA is expected to begin presenting Trump election case to the grand jury today. And a rather peculiar turn, they had something up on their website before presenting the case to the grand jury, uh, outlining the um, actual charges. It was immediately taken down, but it's raised some real questions. Anyway, Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis is expected to start presenting her election case against former President Trump and allies before a grand jury as early as today. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution reported that Willis Uh, Prosecutors are to begin this morning at the courthouse in Atlanta, noting how former Georgia Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan and independent journalist George Cheedy separately confirmed over the weekend that they were notified they will testify before a 23-person grand jury tomorrow. The case could result in the second indictment against the former president in two weeks over alleged efforts to overturn the 2020 election results. Trump has been uh, charged federally in connections with the alleged plot to result uh, of uh, as a result, rather, of a special counsel, Jack Smith's January 6th investigation. Uh, Willis could pursue racketeering charges against the former president and his allies, according to the Journal Constitution. It has taken her between one to two days to present past RICO cases. The North American Aerospace Defense Command, or NORAD, detected and tracked four Russian military aircraft operating in the Alaska Air Defense Identification Zone last Sunday and early Monday morning. The Russian aircraft remained in international airspace, did not enter American or Canadian sovereign airspace, NORAD said in a press release on Monday. This Russian activity in the Alaska ADIS occurs regularly and is not seen as a threat, the command said. And ADIS begins where sovereign airspace ends and is a defined stretch of international airspace that requires the ready identification of all aircraft in the interest of national security. Well, NORAD said its employer, it employs a layered defense network of satellites, ground-based and airborne radars and fighter attack their um, aircraft to track aircraft and inform appropriate actions. NORAD remains ready to employ a number of responses options in defense of North America, the release added. This comes after China and Russia conducted a joint naval operation near U.S. territory earlier this month that triggered a pretty large response from the U.S. Navy. That joint operation, conducted by two significant American adversaries, consisted of 11 ships and neared Alaska's northwestern coach, Senator Dan Sullivan out of Alaska, who was briefed on the matter by U.S. defense officials, told Fox News Digital uh, earlier in the month. 
Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Hey, the 2023 Pastor Appreciation Breakfast is set for Friday, October 6th at the Doubletree by Hilton downtown. Uh, this year's keynote speaker is musician Darren Mulligan of the band We Are Messengers. He's going to share his story, talk about his music ministry, and share a message that is sure to inspire. Morning worship will be led by Ben Fuller. October, as you well know, is Pastor Appreciation Month, and we want to honor all pastors, ministry leaders, and their spouses, plus other key staff members who serve. With a delicious breakfast, fellowship, worship, and a keynote speaker, Darren Mulligan. It's free to attend. Even parking is free, but space is limited. And... um We'll fill up fast, so register online today at kpdq.com. Well, there's fresh hope for the WikiLeaks founder. U.S. Ambassador to Australia, Carolyn Kennedy, has hinted at a possible deal to allow WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange to return to Australia. Mr. Assange has been facing extradition to the U.S. on spying charges for more than a decade and claimed sanctuary in London's Ecuadorian embassy for seven years. But now Ambassador Kennedy has said a solution could be in the pipeline to end the long running saga. It's not really a diplomatic issue, but I think that there's absolutely could be a resolution, she said, speaking to Sydney Morning Herald. Uh, there is a way to resolve it, she said, but she stressed any potential agreement was up to the Justice Department. So we'll continue to follow the story if there actually is one. Well, AI can steal your password, we've just learned. Researchers have found an AI-driven attack that can steal passwords with up to 95% accuracy by listening to what you type on your keyboard. Cornell University researchers trained an AI model on the audio recordings of people typing, and the AI learned to identify the different sounds that each key makes. They tested it on a nearby phone-integrated microphone, listening for keystrokes on a MacBook Pro. When the microphone picked up the sound of a keystroke, the AI model could identify the key that was pressed with 95% accuracy. The team uh, took it further by testing the AI's ability to crack a password by listening to a Zoom call and apparently met with some success. Well, a Native American group is threatening to go on the war path if the NFL's Washington football team doesn't readopt its iconic Redskins name and punt the Commanders moniker. It assumed in 2020 in response to coercion from the cancel culture crowd. Well, on Monday, the Native American Guardians Association, or NAGA, sent a letter to the new leadership of the team condemning the cancel culture that pressured the previous owner to drop Redskins. The group has also posted a petition on change.org calling for restoration of the name. By Thursday, more than 75,000 people had signed the petition that can uh, be seated in the team's home stadium of uh, FedEx Field. That's 63,000. While the letter from NAGA founder and President Eunice Davidson uh, requests a powwow with the team's chiefs, the NFL organization has repeatedly ignored requests for the meeting. A Hawaiian couple is suing for power, suing for power companies, accusing them of ignoring weather warnings amid the historic Maui wildfires that have killed at least 93 people and counting. The main plaintiffs, Monica and Reedy Eder, own a house in the historic town of Lahaina, which was decimated by the wildfire. Their suit is on behalf of a class and subclass of all persons similarly situated. The suit targets Hawaiian Electric Industries, which is the parent company for Heco, Meco, and Helco, 
The lawsuit accuses the um, the power companies of ignoring weather uh, warnings and keeping their power lines energized despite the dangerous conditions. The plaintiffs claim that the companies inexcusably kept their power lines energized during forecasted high fire danger conditions. According to the suit, the National Weather Service had issued a high wind watch and red flag warning, cautioning that energized power lines could make a fire develop more rapidly. The suit alleges that by acting improperly during the historically dangerous conditions, the companies caused loss of life, serious injuries, destruction of hundreds of homes and businesses, displacement of thousands of people and damage to many of Hawaii's historic and cultural sites. Well, scores of people burned to death, the suit said. Other victims suffered severe burns, smoke inhalation and additional serious injuries. A Los Angeles Nordstrom store was ransacked by a mob of more than 30 people on Saturday, with the suspects getting away with nearly $100,000 worth of handbags and clothes. No, they weren't getting food and items you need to survive. The Los Angeles Police Department said a mob of criminals stole items from the store at about 4 p.m. on Saturday. Video capture from inside the store shows a group of 30 to 50 people wearing sweatshirts with hoods over their heads. The suspects are seen inside the department store as they rush to the front entrance with bags in hand, scooping up whatever merchandise they can while uh, tripping on racks uh, to which some items were still attached. Police estimate the stolen merchandise to be worth between sixty and $100,000. This was the second flash mob to take place in Los Angeles County within the past week. Once the group fled the store, they got into waiting vehicles nearby, the station reported. Los Angeles Mayor Karen Bass, she issued a statement about the Nordstrom flash mob on Saturday. What happened today at the Nordstrom's in the Topanga Mall is absolutely unacceptable, she said. Those who committed these acts and acts like it in neighboring areas must be held accountable. The Los Angeles Police Department will continue to not only find those responsible for this incident, but to prevent these attacks on retailers from happening in the future, she added. California, like many states, has been brazen, has seen brazen smash and grab robberies in recent years, a trend that saw an increase during the COVID-19 pandemic. A member of the White House Press Corps has filed a lawsuit against the White House Press Secretary Corrine Jean-Pierre and the Secret Service, alleging they wrongfully revoked his press badge. In his suit filed Thursday, African journalist Simon Atebe, he argues that the White House policy for revoking press access violates the First and Fifth Amendments of the Constitution. President Biden's White House announced new rules in May that, for the first time, allowed for rescinding a, um, the uh, press badge. Defendants violated Mr. Etebe's uh, First Amendment rights by changing the criteria for hard press credentials to intentionally prevent Mr. Etebe from attending hard press access, the lawsuit reads. Defendants did so by adopting credentialing criteria specifically designed to exclude him from eligibility. Such discrimination amounts to a contest-based regulation and viewpoint discrimination against Mr. Etebe in violation of the First Amendment. It continued. The White House didn't immediately respond to a request for comment. In a recent interview, 2024 GOP presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy, he pulled the curtain back on President Biden's self-serving national security policy, making the bold declaration that much of the U.S. military's defense spending within the last few decades has not been properly allocated. 
Well, the uh, presidential candidate said we need a modern Monroe doctrine in this country. The dirty little secret is that much of our military defense spending in the last several decades has not actually gone to national defense. The reality is if we do enter a serious conflict, and I worry that Joe Biden is sleepwalking us into potential nuclear conflict with Russia and Russia and China being in military alliance with one another, that would mean both nations. The reality is, he went on to say, we need defense capabilities of the homeland, nuclear defense capabilities, cyber defense capabilities, super EMP, electromagnetic pulse capabilities that could take out uh, our electric grid. We are way behind. And so the hallmark of my foreign policy is going to be you don't mess with the homeland. Start with that first. End quote. Well, a jury in Multnomah County, Oregon found Portland activist John Hacker and Elizabeth Richter not liable for assault, battery, and intentional infliction of emotional distress for alleged uh, their alleged attack on journalist Andy No, according to a press release from the Center for American Liberty, the organization representing the journalist. No and his attorney, Eric Sell, joined the Ingram angle to respond. Andy No said before it was... Uh, In her closing statement, she, the judge, mentioned that resistance is not peaceful and that she was going to be getting a shirt that declares I am Antifa and that she is retiring and will remember all of the faces of the jurors. It was a very tense week with a near media blackout because of security incidents that kept happening. The jurors expressed to the court who then expressed to the parties that they were really afraid for their safety because of repeated incidents that were happening both in and outside the courtroom and the courthouse. Before the deliberations, the court ordered that the identities of the jurors be sealed because of apparent attempts to identify the identity of the jurors. So this was the context of the trial for the sudden day. The attorney, Eric Sell, knows attorney, said that it's truly remarkable the amount of evidence the jury must have discounted to reach its not guilty verdict or its verdict here that the defendants here weren't liable. And it really leads to the conclusion that jury intimidation was a factor. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll take a break. We'll continue to look at some of the uh, weekend and the day's headlines. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, where we are experimenting on a new weight loss program here at uh, KPDQ. We're just simply melting away. In the absence of any air circulation of any kind. But we are professionals and we're going to soldier on. We're working our way through some of the day's news. James Blinn producing, Dave King engineering, and Dave is uh, sharing in my suffering this afternoon, as is everybody else here in the building. Well, a beacon in trouble. Liberal cities and states are continuing to sound the alarm over a surge of migrants into their jurisdictions. Some are going so far as to call on the federal government to declare a state of emergency while maintaining welcoming rhetoric to all who come across the border. Massachusetts Governor Mara Healey last week declared a state of emergency due to rapid and unabated increases in the number of families with children and pregnant people. They can't say women anymore. Pregnant people. Many of them newly arriving immigrants and refugees living within the state, but without the means to secure safe shelter in our communities, end quote. Well, the state currently has more than 20,000 families in its state shelter system and costs around $45 million a month, her office said. In her letter to the Department of Homeland Security appealing for help, including expedited work authorizations for migrants, comprehensive immigration reform and additional financial assistance for the state, uh, the state Healy noted that migrants uh, were drawn to Massachusetts due to its liberal policies. 
Hmm. Well, later in the week, New York City Mayor Eric Adams backed Healy and issued his own dire warnings of the impact of the nearly 100,000 migrants who have uh, hit the city since 2022. His, uh, he estimated it will cost the city $12 billion by 25, 2025 if things do not change. Both New York City and the state of New York have sought federal aid over the wave of migrants coming in, some by their own means and others being bussed in from Texas, which launched an effort in 2022 to send migrants to sanctuary cities to help relieve the burden on the Lone Star State. This is a hurricane hitting New York City and New York State, Governor Hochul said in May. Lawmakers at the border have bristled at some of the requests for funding, noting that the numbers of migrants reaching those cities is dwarfed by the hundreds of thousands hitting border states every month since the crisis began back in 2021. In Chicago, then-Mayor Lori Lightfoot declared a state of emergency and said the city's resources are now stretched to the breaking point. That's also been caused uh, has caused consternation among the city's residents, with some complaining of the disruptive behaviors of those in shelters, as well as plans to move migrants into community gyms. Earlier this year, the city of Denver placed a two week limit on shelter stays as it uh, faced a surge of migrants over the winter with Colorado's governor clashing uh, with the mayors of Chicago and New York over since ended moves to bus migrants to them. Most recently, California officials objected to moves by Florida Governor DeSantis to fly migrants into the sanctuary state, accusing the state of kidnapping and exploiting migrants. The accusations, however, were shrugged off by DeSantis, who said it uh, was right that liberal cities bore the brunt of the crisis. I don't think we should have any of this, but if there's a policy to have an open border, then I think the sanctuary jurisdictions should be the ones that have to bear that, he said. We're not a sanctuary in Florida. Hmm. Representative Mike McCall, a Republican out of uh, Texas, ridiculed the uh, agreement uh, orchestrated by the Biden administration for Iran to release five Americans in exchange for six billion dollars in assets and jailed Iranians. Reagan said, trust but verify. I have to use the word naivete. McCall, chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, said during an appearance. Look, I want to uh, get these Americans home more than anybody. And one of them is a critical asset, McCall said. I agree with that, but we have to go in with our eyes wide open. Six billion dollars that is now going to go into Iran and prop up their proxy war terror operations and their nuclear bomb aspirations. They are now starting to talk about the JCPOA all over again, uh, which, in my judgment, leads down a course to a legal nuclear bomb in Iran. Prime Minister Netanyahu came out strongly against this as well. I think we're going to uh, we're going back to the mistakes of the past, end quote. McCall also referenced how the State Department placed President Biden's envoy for Iran, Robert Malley, on unpaid leave in June amid a review into his security clearance. Our special envoy to Iran to negotiate the JCPOA is under investigation for mishandling classified information, McCall said. He has the most sensitive information as our top negotiator to Iran and to the Ayatollah, now under investigation for mishandling classified information. It's a very troubling story. Well, later on in the same program, Representative Adam Smith, a Democrat out of Washington, defended the prisoner swap agreement, arguing that the billions of funds would be controlled by gutter. The final transfer of money and the release of five detainees is expected in the next month or so. 
due to the complicated nature of the financial transactions, officials are saying. But in a statement on Friday, Iran's Ministry of Foreign Affairs said the decision on how to utilize these unfrozen resources and financial assets lies with the Islamic Republic of Iran. The statement ran counter to the claim that the money would only be released by gutter to Iran for specific purposes. Shannon Bream of Fox News noted critics of the agreement said it amounts to an an exorbitant ransom payment. That's a fundamental misunderstanding of what this money is, Smith argued, pushing back against former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo's criticism that the deal would mean placing a bounty on Americans' heads. It's not a bounty because we're not paying the money. It's Iran's money that we're uh, that was sitting in South Korea. You can interpret it however you choose. Six billion dollars is a lot of money they'll now have access to and declare that they are responsible for and are the sole um, uh, individuals responsible for how that money will be used. Senator Ted Cruz out of Texas is the latest to blast Attorney General Merrick Garland's move to appoint David Weiss a special counsel in the Justice Department's Hunter Biden probe, calling it not only disgraceful, but also alleging the move is an attempt <coughs> excuse me, to protect the Biden family. The appointment is uh, camouflage and it's a cover up, he told Fox News Maria Bartiromo on Sunday morning futures. I think it's disgraceful. David Weiss was the U.S. attorney handpicked to lead this investigation. I need to take a moment for a swallow. After all. We're living in a desert here in the uh, in the studio. <coughs> Water. Anyway, I think it's disgraceful. David Weiss was the U.S. attorney handpicked to lead this investigation who spent the last five years covering it up. David Weiss, who was personally selected by the two Democrat senators from Delaware, Tom Carper and Chris Coons, for five years, the investigation has gone nowhere other than to protect Hunter Biden and Joe Biden. He went on to say the appointment, which has garnered intense criticism from many in the days since, was announced by Garland at a press conference in Washington, D.C. on Friday. The White House was not informed of Garland's decision before the news broke. We're told that's according to senior Department of Justice official. Republicans are the loudest critics, including Representative James Comer out of Kentucky, who alleged the Biden Justice Department is working to stonewall congressional oversight as Congress presents evidence pointing to alleged Biden family corruption. Romo during the segment, pointed to the appointment's convenient timing, saying it came on the heels of Comer telling her Thursday that the walls are closing in for the Bidens. To further cast doubt on the Justice Department's intentions, Senator Cruz highlighted two IRS whistleblowers who came forward to complain about Weiss. They said they'd never seen an investigation like this in their entire time in law enforcement. Again, we'll continue to follow this story as it will invariably develop. President Biden's response to the Hunter Biden probe could damage him pretty seriously ahead of the 2024 election. That's a quote from NBC's Meet the Press host. Near the top of the uh, the hour, host Chuck Todd he introduced a topic following Attorney General Merrick Garland appointing Special Counsel David Weiss, Weiss rather, to further investigate Hunter's activities. Todd contrasted the news with the multiple indictments against former President Donald Trump, but acknowledged that the investigation into Hunter Biden has raised some serious questions for voters. President Biden's handling of the case, he went on to say, has raised questions at a time when voters already have doubts about his age and political standing. Biden brought his son to a state dinner just two days after the plea deal that was has since collapsed 
and uh, was announced. And he has repeatedly defended him, denying wrongdoing altogether, even though Hunter himself has pled guilty, Todd said. NBC's political analyst Brendan Buck, he similarly suggested that the White House needs to take the, the scandal around the president's son more seriously as the investigations become more public. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll take a break and continue to wind our way through some of the day's headlines. And in the second hour, a conversation with David Clausen, author of Male and Female, He Created Them. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, CNN raised eyebrows on Saturday after publishing a detailed explainer on the use of neo-pronouns a new kind of gender-neutral or non-binary pronoun that allows subjects to characterize themselves using genderless descriptors like leaf, sun, and star. Well, in the story titled A Guide to Neo-Pronouns from A.E. to Z.E., CNN's uh, article outlined the use of alternative grammar that eliminates gender markers, uh, quoting one of the foremost experts on neo-pronouns who encouraged readers to use and respect neo-pronouns like any other common pronoun. I'm not sure how you keep up, how you know who's what and what's whom. Anyway, I think just stop talking. Maybe we just stop making any verbal reference whatsoever. Hey, you. Of course, you don't know how that might offend someone. While the Biden administration and others are on the far left like to talk about the billionaires and ultra-wealthy paying their fair share, the proposals that they put forth always seem to focus on keeping the middle class struggling, whether it's uh, hoping to hire 80,000-plus new IRS staffers, which clearly isn't meant to just go after the 800 or so U.S. billionaires, or lowering the IRS reporting threshold for online transactions from 20000 to $600, These endeavors are, well, they're squarely focused on Main Street America, not Wall Street's billionaire class. But these proposals pale in comparison to the setup for what could be the greatest government wealth heist of all time. Financial consultant Sorelli Associates, which track wealth trends, estimate that between 2021 and 2035, there will be a total of $84.4 trillion in wealth transferred. Of that, just more than $11 trillion is set to go to philanthropic endeavors. That's more than the yearly GDP of every country other than the United States and China. And an historic $70 trillion is set to be transferred to heirs. Well, this would be an historic free choice transfer of wealth, assuming that the government doesn't get there first. There is a ton of wealth that has been earned. Those who have earned it deserve to decide what happens to it. If it ends up in the hands of their designated beneficiaries, it could meaningfully help thwart the efforts to strip ownership and wealth from the average American. These beneficiaries will include millennial and Gen X recipients, and to a smaller extent, Gen Z. Even today, before this epic transfer begins in earnest, inheritances are meaningful for the average American might just become a thing of the past. Well, Jonathan Turley weighs in, saying that uh, Biden's special counsel pick reveals A.G. Garland joining media, is joining the media, encircling wagons to defend the president and his family. The appointment of David Weiss as special counsel in the Hunter Biden investigation has caused an outcry of objections, including from some who have uh, called for such an appointment for years. Not only did Attorney General Merrick Garland not select someone from outside the Justice Department as required under the law, let me emphasize, as required under the law, but selected a prosecutor who has been accused 
by whistleblowers of running a fixed investigation. Yet the most glaring problem was the failure of Garland to expand the mandate of the investigation to include the growing corruption scandal involving the president. Well, there appears no um, no evidence that Garland will accept as uh, warranting an investigation into corruption, alleging uh, allegedly involving uh, $20 million in transfers uh, from a variety of foreign interests, including some with ties to foreign intelligence. For its part, the media is adopting the same position of willful blindness. Indeed, it's now uh, it now has a new demand before it will fully recognize or report on the scandal at all. They want to see Joe Biden actually accepting money. Well, like Garden, they will Garland rather. They will not independently investigate and will not take growing evidence of an elaborate system of accounts used to hide these payments. Of course, after long repeating denials of Joe Biden that he never knew about his son's foreign business deals, the media must now recognize that Hunter was selling influence and access. So they have come up with a demand that critics show the very thing that this system of accounts was designed to avoid, direct deposits to Joe Biden. It's what in literature is called the impossible task, demand like the Slavic tale of um, of a czar ordering a suitor to go there uh, where he uh, does not know where and to get that he does not know what, end quote. Well, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the Consumer Price Index has risen 16 percent under the president. The CPI rose 3.2 percent in the year ending in July, an acceleration from the 3 percent reading in June. Well, such rapid devaluation of the currency has some people uh, referring to the dollar as monopoly money. But it turns out that's unfair to the eponymous board game. In fact, if the nation had begun using monopoly money in 1935, when the game first went on sale, inflation over the last 88 years would have been substantially lower because the supply of monopoly money has grown much less than that of the Federal Reserve note. That is um, an amazing fact, considering that the only board game with higher lifetime sales are chess and checkers, and they had head starts of hundreds of thousands of years, respectively. Hmm. Well, records reveal that Dr. Fauci made over $300 million from the COVID pandemic while Americans suffered. And while the entire United States was under authoritarian mandates, top so-called COVID-19 experts, in quotes, were making hundreds of millions of dollars on the pandemic that caused lifelong hurdles for many Americans. And the death toll in Maui, the wildfire has risen to 93, making it the deadliest wildfire in over a century. Representative Greg Stube, a a Republican out of Florida, has introduced four articles of impeachment against President Biden. The representative jumped ahead of his Republican colleagues on Friday and introduced articles of impeachment against President Biden. While several congressional committees are building a multi-pronged case to remove Biden from office, he said it was a pastime to take action. He filed articles of impeachment against the president, charging that he had uh, been complicit in his son Hunter's alleged crimes and had worked to shield him from justice. The representative filed four articles alleging high crimes and misdemeanors by the president. The U.S. saw the highest number of suicides in 2022. The New York Post reports that about 49,500 people took their own lives last year in the U.S., the highest number ever, according to new government data posted on Thursday. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention that posted the numbers has not yet calculated a suicide rate for the year, but available data suggests suicides are more common in the U.S. than at any other time since the dawn of World War II. Experts caution that suicide is 
uh, complicated and that recent increases might be driven by a range of factors, including higher rates of depression and limited availability of mental health services. U.S. suicides steadily rose from the early 2000s until 2018 when the national rate hit its highest level since 20 or rather 1941. That year saw 48,300 suicide deaths or 14.2 for every 100,000 Americans. Last year, according to the new data, the number jumped by more than 1,000 to 49,449, about a 3% increase versus the year before. The largest increases were seen in older adults. Deaths rose uh, rose nearly 7% in people ages 45 to 64 and more than 8% in people 65 and over. White men in particular have very high rates, the CDC went on to say. White people had the next highest rate with 17 deaths per 100,000 people. Arizona public universities no longer request applicants make diversity statements on their applications. The public universities will no longer request these statements on their job applications in what free speech advocates called a huge win. A large portion of faculty job postings at Arizona State University and University of Arizona and Northern Arizona University required applicants to provide diversity statements as a condition of hiring the conservative Goldwater Institute found earlier this year. At the University of Arizona, 28% of job postings had a mandatory diversity statement as of the fall of last year. At Northern Arizona University, 73% of job postings required one. And Arizona State University had the highest portion at 81% of job postings requiring a diversity statement, according to the Institute's report. The Arizona University system at times required job applicants to replace their um, traditional cover letter with a diversity statement, submit two full pages on the candidate's activism or commitment to diversity, and sometimes even called on applicants to endorse progressive concepts like intersectional personal identities. Well, apparently, no more. Meanwhile, the Biden administration is looking to build housing on the southern border to hold illegal immigrants The administration is asking Congress to approve a temporary housing program for migrant families that illegally cross the southern border, a plan that would give them more freedom than traditional detention. Uh, The Axios has learned the government has struggled to balance humanitarian concerns about detaining migrant children while enforcing immigration laws amid a rise in families illegally crossing the border to seek asylum. The administration is asking for a $40 billion emergency fund Request to Congress. The package includes uh, nearly $2.7 billion for the Department of Homeland Security's various border efforts. DHS wants the ability to use funds to set up new types of facilities to hold migrant families as they go through an expedited asylum and deportation process. As for the homeless who are U.S. citizens, well, no plans. We need to take a break. We've got news and traffic at the top of the hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. In this hour, a conversation with David Clausen. He's the co-author of Male and Female. He created them. We'll also talk about Abraham Lincoln's painful message to the pro-life community. And tomorrow on the program, a conversation with Aaron Burke, Radiant Church in Tampa, Florida. That's where he hails from. Unfair Advantage is the title of his book, Seven Keys from the Life of Joseph for Transforming Any Obstacle into an opportunity that's coming up on tomorrow's program. 
Well, the Oklahoma Health Department has released its abortion stats for 2022, and they show thousands of babies saved from abortion thanks to Oklahoma's abortion ban. After Texas, Oklahoma became the second state in the nation with an enforceable abortion ban protecting the lives of little babies before birth. Oklahoma Governor Kevin Stitt, he signed into law the most protective abortion ban in the country at the time when he signed it in May of 2022. The measure was a Texas-style law. It includes a private right to um, a right of action as enforcement, but instead of protecting babies at six weeks when their heartbeat can be detected as the Texas law does, it starts protecting unborn children at conception when their life actually begins. Well, the ban went into effect immediately, and Oklahoma has since instituted a full abortion ban protecting unborn children. Well, the U.S. Postal Service is hemorrhaging $87 billion. The Postal Service reported a $1.7 billion loss in the third quarter, adding to ongoing losses for the once self-sufficient agency. The Postal Service, an independent federal establishment that's mandated to be self-financing, said the third quarter losses were almost exclusively to the non-cash impact of the Postal Service Reform Act in April of 22. Well, the act removed the Postal Service's obligation to pre-fund retiree health benefits and eliminated all previously imposed pre-funding requirements that remained unpaid, among other changes. The law was intended to improve the Postal Service's financial st- uh, sustainability. Congress designed the U.S. Postal Service to be self-sustaining. But in fiscal year 2007, expenses overtook revenue. This has led to losses of $87 billion through 2020. The agency is also saddled with $188 billion in unfunded liabilities and debt. The U.S. Postal Service is the largest postal service in the world, delivering an estimated 49% of all mail sent globally. Well, President Biden had no comment on Maui. The death toll sits at 96 and is expected to rise as cadaver dogs have been brought in to work the burned-out rubble of the oceanside town of Lahaina, Maui, in Hawaii. It's being described as a firestorm. A wildfire broke out on the Hawaiian island, was uh, whipped into a fury by high winds, trapping residents and sending people literally running into the sea if they were fortunate enough to make it. This fire is already the deadliest in the U.S. in over a century. Given the devastation and loss of life, the president was asked about it after returning from his beach vacation. He offered only a two-word response, no comment. Illinois... uh, Uh, In January, Illinois Democrat Governor J.B. Pritzker signed into law the so-called assault weapons ban known as the Protect Illinois Communities Act, or PICA. It bans the sale and distribution of certain semi-automatic rifles and high-capacity magazines. It grants local authorities the power to ban other firearms in the future, and it requires current owners of restricted firearms to register them with state authorities. The law was immediately challenged as infringing Illinoisans um, Annoy is probably right. Second Amendment rights. Well, on Friday, in a 4-3 ruling, the Supreme Court there upheld the law, arguing the act attempts to balance public safety against the expertise of the trained professionals and the expectation uh, interests of the uh, grandfathered individuals. End quote. We expect this case will be headed to the U.S. Supreme Court. So stay tuned. Top law schools are blackballing conservatives. Students and members of the Federalist Society, a prestigious conservative legal organization, say they're being discriminated against by three of the nation's top law schools. In doing research on bias against conservatives, University of Chicago law student Benjamin Ogilvie concluded that Columbia, 
Northwestern and Stanford Law Schools are engaging in underhanded discrimination against students with conservative political views. Ogilvy points out anti-conservative bias in these schools' uh, law reviews uh, by noting the conspicuous absence of any conservative law students. He observed students on law reviews select and edit legal scholarship, determining which law professors get tenure and which legal and policy ideas enter circulation. This is significant as criminal defense lawyer Michael uh, Sisinchi, or something very like that, explains a lot of employers view the law review experience, especially the publication of a note or comment, as evidence of the student's ability to research, think critically, edit, and write. Effectively, these top schools are blackballing law students who hold right-leaning views. On Friday, a judge ordered big-time Democrat donor Sam Bankman-Fried sent to jail, revoking his bail for alleged witness tampering. The founder of the now-bankrupt cryptocurrency exchange and hedge fund, uh, the company FTX, bankrupt, um, faces numerous uh, fraud and money laundering charges. Maybe the only thing keeping him from being uh, tagged as Bernie Madoff of the millennial generation is his massive Democrat donation play, or rather, yes, play. Well, Bankman Freed during the 2022 election cycle alone donated nearly $40 million to Democrats, second only to George Soros. His trial is scheduled to begin on the 2nd of October. The judge found credible the uh, prosecution's claim, rejecting any request for delays from his defense and had him immediately remanded into custody. Here's hoping the security cameras at the Metropolitan Det- Detention Center remain in full operating order for the duration of Bankman Freed's stay. Well, A.G. Garland appointed Hunter Biden investigator David Weiss as special counsel. An FBI agent says the Biden uh, transition team and Secret Service were tipped off on the 2022 plans to interview Hunter Biden. And inflation is forcing Americans to spend $709 more per month than two years ago. U.S. oil and gas rigs are down by 14 percent from last year, despite high oil prices. And Seattle tops U.S. cities where residents are considering moving over safety worries. And Iran is uh, close to testing nuclear weapons for the first time. Well, on this day in history, 1935, the Social Security Administration, or rather the Social Security Act, become law. 1945, President Harry S. Truman announces that Imperial Japan surrendered unconditionally, ending World War II in the Pacific Theater. 1947, Pakistan becomes independent of British rule. 1997, Oklahoma City bomber Timothy McVeigh is sentenced to death. 2003, a huge blackout hits the northeastern United States and part of Canada. 50 million people lose power. 2008, on this day in history, President George W. Bush, he signs consumer safety legislation that bans lead from children's toys, imposing the toughest standard in the world. And finally, on this day in history, 2015, the U.S. Embassy in Cuba reopens after being closed for 54 years. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, David Clausen. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We live in an era where there's a lot of confusion about things that used to be fixed, immutable, and well understood. And for many of us believers, followers of Jesus, we just assume not deal with it. Just look away and hope that, well, it doesn't touch us personally. Well, those days have passed. And there's a new resource I want to make you aware of that's been produced, Male and Female, He Created Them, a study on gender, sexuality, and marriage. 
One of the co-authors joins us now is David Clausen. He serves as the director of the Center for Biblical Worldview at Family Research Council, where he researches and writes on life, human sexuality, religious liberty, and related issues from a biblical worldview. He's currently completing a Ph.D. in Christian ethics at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary and is a graduate of South uh, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and the University of Central Florida. Uh, he lives in Washington, D.C., as a member of uh, Capitol Hill Baptist Church and joins us to talk about this resource that is designed to help the church confront the issue and to better understand uh, what the scriptures teach on the subject of uh, human sexuality and all the attendant issues. Thank you so much for joining us today. Welcome. Well, Georgine, it's a joy to be on the program. Greetings from our nation's capital here in Washington, D.C. Well, it may seem like an obvious question, but I'm going to ask, uh, what motivated you to write uh, this piece, particularly for uh, the sake of members of the church to better understand and be able to articulate uh, the biblical worldview on the this, this subject of gender, sexuality, and marriage? Oh, absolutely. So I work at Family Research Council, which is a policy organization here in D.C. My co-authors, Denny Burke and Colin Smothers, they actually are in Louisville, Kentucky. They work uh, primarily for the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. And uh, we're friends from my time at Southern as a student. And uh, really, wherever they, uh, Colin and Denny, would travel around the country kind of talking about uh, the roles of men and women in the home and the church and what is biblical manhood, what is biblical womanhood, kind of wherever they would go to speak, uh, afterwards they would be asked questions on gender and sexuality and marriage. At my role at FRC, I've been able to travel the country and even some internationally speaking on kind of on a whole host of issues. Uh, but really kind of wherever I went after my talk or lecture, you know, little line of people come up to you and want to talk to you. And the questions, 90 plus percent were, how do I think about this, really the sexual revolution, transgenderism? Uh, and so we just realized there there needs to be a resource. Uh, thankfully, there's some good books, Georgine. Uh, but mm-hmm. this is actually kind of like an eight-week study that's – and you would benefit if you went cover to cover through it by yourself. But it's actually meant to kind of for a small group or for a family or for a Bible study uh, to go with it, uh, to go through it together. Um, there's there's videos that go along with it. And so we just know these are contested issues in the public square, and we really need to think together through these as a church. Well, it is a very timely uh, tome because there is – a lot of um, I, I'm not sure confusion is the right word. I think people are fairly clear on what the scripture teaches. But how do you navigate the hostile culture that we find ourselves in, in which if you hold an opposing point of view, if you hold a biblical view on uh, the subject of gender, sexuality and marriage, you are deemed hateful and you can be canceled in some pretty significant ways. How do you hope this uh, this book will be used when um Christians come together to consider what does the the scripture have to say on these subjects? Well, a a couple of things, Georgina, and I I will say we're at Family Research Council. We're a week or two away from actually uh, releasing a a nationwide worldview study that we did with George Barna. Mm -hmm. Uh, We polled uh, thousands of people around, specifically in the church. Uh, 72% of the people who took our poll are, are weekly church attenders. And uh, one of the things we were shocked by, and here I'll give you one of the stats, uh, kind of like a pre-release here, if you will, uh, only 52% of the folks who, and these are regular church attenders, not just those who identify as Christian, uh, told us that they thought the Bible was really clear on transgenderism. Um, I think the number was in the high 60s on whether the Bible is actually clear on 
uh, the moral status of homosexuality. And so to, to me, so I, I hear the, the question you ask. I, I just want to take it a step further. I do think there's a lot of faithful folks who go to church, uh, but they're actually a little murky on these issues because maybe they haven't been taught from their pastor. Maybe they haven't dug into the scriptures for themselves. Um, and so I, I do think there's a lot of education that needs to take place in the church and in Christian homes, Christian schools. Um, but, but to the, the question that you ask about kind of the hostility, it's true. Uh, the issues that we're dealing with right now, so this is back to school season we're, we're about mm-hmm. to enter, uh, uh, questions that were uh, unchallenged and assumed just a couple of years ago, uh, think of the question preferred pronouns, uh, these weren't even on the radar, and now they are, which is why we think parents uh, need to be talking to their kids now about what you're going to do uh, when that teacher asks you to use preferred pronouns or that classmate who was a boy last year wants to identify as a girl this year. Like we need to be having those conversations now. Yeah, absolutely. I I wonder too if there is some confusion within the church. I know there is a stream within the church that embraces all of these things and it's much more convenient to just accept it and to move on rather than to explore what the scripture teaches and then to stand on on the truth of, of those scriptures. A lot of people just want to opt out. Oh, it's true. No, they do. Know, and it, no, I think it's inherent with a lot of us. No one likes controversy. The very few people, you know, when there's an argument or there's a contention, want to run into the middle of that. Uh-huh. Um, and, and as Christians, we want to be kind and loving, and we want to be people who exhibit the fruit of the Spirit. And, and you know, there's a whole host of issues that I think that good-meaning Christians can agree to disagree on. You know, I'm a Baptist, and I think my Presbyterian friends are mistaken on uh, baptism. But, you know, we're co-laborers, we get along. Um, you know, there's room to disagree on some secondary and tertiary issues, uh, but there are some issues where there's a clear "thus saith the Lord." Uh, there's a chapter and a verse that we can go to in Holy Scripture, and when it comes to the things like the definition of marriage, or whether there's male or female, or the moral status of homosexuality, and, and I know anyone, perhaps people listening to this conversation, uh, even just raising the question uh, will sound bigoted and mean spirited. Uh, but there are some issues the Bible's clear on, and where the Bible's clear, uh, those who follow Jesus ought to be clear. And you know what? Jesus, I'm thinking John 15, 16, some of the last words he shared with his disciples, he said, as they persecuted me, they will persecute you. So in one sense, we should expect this. Yeah, we shouldn't be surprised. I, I wonder if you would comment on how central this um understanding what the scriptures teach on this subject and the assault on marriage and gender and sexuality, uh, what it says about God himself. And if it undermines his credibility, if we reject what he clearly um, lays out in, in the Bible, um, is it more serious than just whether or not my neighbor is going to be called a he or a she? No, the the very uh, trustworthiness of God and his word is at stake in this debate. Uh, we know from Ephesians chapter 5, uh, the, the, the marriage relationship is a pattern for the way Christ relates to his church, the, the blood-bought, redeemed body of saints uh, that, that Jesus has bought back. Um, and, and really the trustworthiness of, of God's Word is at stake. We know 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God, and it's profitable. And if you can go to the Scripture, and, and there's a passage that clearly defines marriage, or clearly defines any of these issues, and then somehow you can say, well, actually, it means the exact opposite. Well, then all of a sudden, that means we can't take God at his word. 
And if we can't take God at his word, then God himself is not trustworthy. And where does that leave you? Uh, Nowhere good. And so I think, yeah, the very character of God and the trustworthiness of his word is wrapped up in how we understand uh, some of these basic things, such as his creation of us, male and female. Uh, That's what it means uh, to be in God's image. He created us male and female in his image and the relationship of marriage. Um, which reflects that unique relationship that Christ has with his redeemed people. So this is, it's inescapable for us to, we may not find ourselves confronting anyone or discussing the issue, issue publicly, but it is important for us to have a clear understanding. What does God have to say about this subject, about the ones he himself created? Now, the book is designed for group settings like Sunday school classes, small group Bible studies. You have some great chapter outlines. I think for, for some who aren't on top of this, um, might even be completely unfamiliar, but there are phrases and subjects that will help to better understand where we are as a culture. We're going to take a break here in just a moment, but when we come back, I'd like to kind of walk through these uh, chapter headings and then talk about how a, a small group would, would use this resource to help them understand what the scriptures teach and what the culture is offering. So we'll, uh, we'll continue in just a few moments. Again, we're talking this afternoon with a co-author of Male and Female, He Created Them, a study on gender, sexuality, and marriage. He wrote it along with uh, Denny Burke and Colin Smothers. We'll continue our conversation in just a few moments, so stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with David Clausen. He is the co-author, along with Denny Burke and Colin Smothers, of Male and Female, He Created Them, a study on gender, sexuality, and marriage. David is uh, not only the co-author, but he also is the director of the Center for Biblical Worldview at the Family Research Council. The book is published by the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. Now, just before the break, we were talking about how to uh, to use the book and some of the chapters that you focus on uh, during the uh, the weeks of this study. Can you kind of walk us through some of these um, these chapter titles? Absolutely. So, like I said, it's eight weeks, and we really try to root people in the Bible. Because, you know, you know, one thing, Georgine, I think we said this in the first segment, you know, in one sense, we're not saying anything new that hasn't been said. What we're really trying to do is just point people to the ancient troops, truths of Scripture uh, that have guided God's people for 2,000 years. Um, so kind of week one is called Creation's Warrant, uh, which is just kind of orienting people to how to read the Bible, to, to read, you know, to have a good hermeneutic, so to speak, mm-hmm. understanding how to read Scripture in its literary, historical, canonical context. And we, we start with Jesus, uh, which is always a good place to start. Uh, but, you know, when Jesus was asked about marriage uh, in the context of a question about divorce, where did he go? And we show that he went to Genesis uh, 1 and 2. And we're kind of just trying to show how Jesus himself read the Bible. And that goes into chapter 2 called Creation's Order, where we really do do uh, like a, a deep dive on what God's Word says in Genesis 1 and 2, the creation of male and female in his image, and then the institution of marriage. Uh, so that's, those are kind of the first two chapters introducing people uh, to try to frame our mind to think about these issues the way the Bible thinks about these issues. You go on from there to, uh, to sins, disorders, exchanging the truth of yes. God for a lie, which is becoming more uh, common. It's becoming comfortable. I suppose um, rejection of God's truth is always more comfortable in, a, in an age and a culture that doesn't embrace it, but... 
These are serious challenges for us to consider. You go from there to temptation, desire and orientation, transgenderism, intersex, which again may uh, be a new concept to many, identity and sanctification, sexual sin and the gospel. So you cover quite a wide array of subjects that help us to understand the, uh, this cultural moment. We, we, we try to, Georgina, because that's, you know, these are the questions we know people are asking. So we did include, like you said, a whole chapter on intersex. Um, sometimes, you know, the acronym LGBTQ uh, mm-hmm. will be spelled LGBTQIA. Well, the I stands for intersex. And what is intersex? Well, that really just refers, it's kind of an umbrella term that refers to people who've experienced a, a physical disorder of sexual development. Uh, so perhaps a baby's born with uh, ambiguous genitalia. And so some people will say, hey, look, uh, because there's a disorder in sexual development, that therefore must defeat the whole gender binary, the idea that there's man, men and women. And, and so we kind of look at this and we say, well, no, in a Genesis 3 world, a fallen world, things go wrong, uh, even in our development. And, and so we talk about how to think about intersex. And we argue, we think even Jesus uh, in Matthew 19 had this category of people in mind. Um, and, and so, again, we're just trying to walk through the issues that we know people, our friends and neighbors are talking about through the lens of God's Word, which which has clear answers and, I would argue, uh, very hopeful answers. Absolutely. In addition to the uh, uh, the workbook, I'll call it, Male and Female, He Created Them, you also uh, give access to uh, videos that can help um, your studiers to go deeper. We, we do, and actually anybody can access those videos for free if you just go to hecreatedthem.org, just kind of all one word, hecreatedthem.org. Uh, there's a tab there. Now, the videos are meant to be watched along with the booklet, but anyone can kind of get a taste of the material. We have world-class scholars, uh, Dr. Albert Moeller, uh, president of Southern Seminary. We have uh, Christopher Yuan. Um, we have Dr. Heath Lambert, uh, pastor, pastor First Baptist of Dallas. Uh, H.P. Charles, uh, a well-known uh, African-American uh, pastor. We have Rosaria Butterfield, who identified as a lesbian uh, for years, uh, was a professor at Syracuse University, and then had a life-changing encounter with Jesus, and uh, now has written books on this issue. And so she she provides one of the videos as well to think about our identity. Uh, what, what, what do we mean when we talk about our identity? What does it mean to have our identity first and foremost in Christ? Um, and... and you know, we, we also talk about just real practical issues. What, what, what happens when uh, someone asks you to use preferred pronouns or do you go to the same-sex wedding ceremony? Uh, so it's not just theory, although, mm-hmm. of course, theory is important, uh, but we want to bring the theory out of the ivory tower, so to speak, um, onto the streets. Uh, and and real-life questions that we know believers are facing and just, again, come alongside Christian parents and pastors uh, and think just a little bit more faithfully about these questions. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate that emphasis on practice, because I think for for many of us, um, gaining understanding is the first uh, part, and it's essential. But how do we navigate through some of the uh, rather treacherous waters that we're we're going to be called upon to navigate through? We want to extend the love of Jesus out into the culture uh, and we might assume that doing so, we just simply put blinders on and follow wherever the culture is leading us. But God is calling us to something else and how we do both things. We stay faithful to the gospel. We extend the love of Christ uh, and love others well um, is a is a challenge. 
It is. And I think, you know, sometimes we can, you know, we, uh, one of my go-to verses, whether it's this issue, the abortion issue, religious liberty issues, uh, Paul's letter to the Ephesians in chapter 4, verse 15, when he said that we need to speak the truth in love. Yes. I think some of us might be better at the truth part, uh, whereas other people might be better, think they're more naturally better at the, the love and the kind part. Uh, but Paul says those things are not, they're really two sides of the same, different sides of the same coin. And so we want to be robust in our understanding of the Scripture and be able to speak truth. Uh, but we do it realizing we're speaking to other people uh, who are going through the same trials and temptations that we are, that are broken people, that are hurting people. And so I think, you know, we, those things don't have to be um, in tension with one another. That, that should really, I think, mark the way all of us as Christians engage these issues. I want to make sure that our listeners know where they can gain a copy of Male and Female. He created them, a study on gender, sexuality, and marriage intended to be uh, studied uh, with a group of people, whether that's a Bible study or a Sunday school class. What's the best way for them to to get a copy and copies, I guess? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. You can go to hecreatedthem.org, and we have tabs for like Amazon Christian Book from the publisher. Uh, So just hecreatedthem.org. And if you want to learn more about the resources that we're putting out, go to frc.org forward slash worldview. Excellent. Well, again, I so appreciate the resource that you've made available. We desperately need to be taught and affirmed that this is what the scripture says and how we can approach uh, these issues, because ultimately we want to see our friends and neighbors and coworkers come to faith in Christ. And we want to be faithful to the gospel um, and again, to extend the love of Christ uh, into our communities and to do it um, in a way that reflects his heart. Amen. Yeah. Well said. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And, well, thank you so much for the invitation. It was a joy to be on the program. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Again, David Clausen, co-author, along with Denny Burke and Colin Smothers, of Male and Female, He Created Them, a study of gender, sexuality, and marriage intended Uh, to be used as a group uh, study, whether that's a Sunday school class or a Bible study. And you can find out more information at hecreatedthem.org. And as uh, mentioned uh, just briefly, there's also video to correspond with the study, this eight-week study. So you have some scholarly voices to to join in that conversation and would encourage you to take full advantage. I know for many of us, we're uncomfortable around the subject uh, but this is the the time and the place that God has placed us. So we need to be uh, responsible and, and careful and prepared. Uh, we may not go seeking opportunities to bring the subject up, but it will come to us. And we want to make sure that we're uh, providing everything that God intends when we have that encounter uh, with those who uh, who need his his love and his gospel. Stay with us. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. I read with interest an article written by Josh Hammer on Abraham Lincoln's painful message for the pro-life community in which we're reminded that victory doesn't always reveal itself all at once, but may take a period of time. And he writes that pro-lifers waited 49 grueling years to see the judicial barbarism of Roe versus Wade finally overturned in last year's blockbuster Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health or Organization. Well, that ruling delivered by Justice Samuel Alito merely repoliticized a hotly contested issue that had been erroneously accorded the status of constitutional right in Rome. Well, unfortunately, it seems perhaps likely, based on rapid accumulating data points, that pro-lifers' patience could be similarly tested 
as we push onward toward the only logical endpoint in this defining struggle for the substantive justice and human dignity, abortion abolition in America. Well, last week's resounding defeat of issue one in Increasingly bright red Ohio is another tough pill to swallow for pro-lifers, of which I am one, who have now endured a number of painful ballot box defeats in the year plus since Dobbs. True, that ballot measure, which would have soundly raised the threshold for amending the Ohio Constitution to 60 percent of the voters from the bare majority status quo, said nothing explicitly about abortion. But in advance of this November separate ballot box referendum on codifying an abortion right in Ohio's Constitution, Issue 1 was treated as an abortion proxy by Buckeye state activists on both sides, not to mention those across the country who flooded the state with money to help mobilize voters on both sides. Issue 1 was rejected 57 percent to 43 percent. Now, if that were the end of the story, it wouldn't be all that terrible. But the defeat of issue one must be interpreted in a broader context. Since Dobbs, the following has all transpired. Michigan's abortion rights constitutional amendment passed 57 to 43 percent. Kansans retrained um, an abortion right in their state constitution via an unusually poor worded referendum, albeit by 59 percent to 41 percent margin. Kentuckians voted to reject a declaration that their state constitution not be construed to obtain to contain rather an abortion right by 52 percent to 48 percent margin. And a crucial state Supreme Court election in Wisconsin was decidedly won by a pro-abortion jurist flipping that court from a conservative to a progressive majority in what has become one of the nation's closest swing states. It's certainly true that numerous pro-life governors won handily in last November's midterm election despite having passed pro-life legislation. Ron DeSantis and Kim Reynolds demolished their opponents in Florida and Iowa, respectively. And Texas Governor Abbott and Georgia's Brian Kemp also secured their own reelections by very comfortable margins. At the same time, available exit polling from last November tended to show that most single-issue abortion voters, those whose votes were mostly animated by or even cast exclusively due to their stance on abortion, Pull the lever for Democrats, not Republicans. That's a stark reversal from the pre-Dobbs era, when most single-issue voters on this issue were animated by their pro-life convictions and a determination to see Roe discarded into the dustbin of history. The question then becomes one of the very oldest in all of politics. What to do when the advancement of one's cause, though that cause is plainly just and righteous, is tempered by both whim and entrenchment, entrenched rather public sentiment? The answer lies in drawing yet another parallel between abortion and chattel slavery. And as the uh, descendant of slaves, this is particularly meaningful to me, which, like abortion, before it both involved the wicked treatment of human life as disposable property and was falsely codified as a right under the U.S. Constitution due to the oxymoronic constitutional law doctrine known as substantive due process. Roe was the case of abortion and the infamous 1857 case, Dred Scott versus Sanford, and the case of slavery. In 1858, during this first debate with Senator Stephen Douglas, uh, the Democrat from Illinois in um, Ottawa, Illinois, Abraham Lincoln said, with public sentiment, nothing can fail. Without it, nothing can succeed. Consequently, he who molds public sentiment goes deeper than he who enacts statutes or pronounces decisions. He makes statutes and decisions possible or impossible to be executed, end quote. Lincoln's point mustn't be misinterpreted. Law and culture do affect each other, and 
A skilled ruler can utilize the law as a means of inculcating virtue or instilling sound Republican habits of mind. But some underlying reserve of public sentiment is still necessary to affect transformative change. In order for voters to trust a ruler such that they might ultimately be guided by him, they must first sufficiently trust that the ruler adequately speaks for them and has their best interest in mind. The unfortunate reality for abortion abolitionists is that American public sentiment does not yet match the orthodox pro-life claim that human life as early as a fertilized egg or embryo, which possesses a unique genetic code, is dignified and inherently worthy of legal protection as persons under the meaning of the U.S. Constitution's 14th Amendment. It's true that courts and legislatures have acted ahead of trailing public opinion in many other instances, including the same-sex marriage fights of last decade. But while Americans strongly oppose late-term abortion, and depending on the wording of a given poll, will often support abortion bans of um, in the 12 to 15-week gestational range, the moral intuition of the median American regarding the inherent dignity of the human embryo simply does not yet accord with the orthodox pro-life stance. Again, that is the simple reality. More education on this issue encompassing everything from embryology to the philosophy of law is thus very much needed. Fortunately, there are some wonderful pro-life organizations that are doing precisely that. Also, pro-life lawmakers, for their part, must act in accordance with the path described as uh, supporting uh, families, raising children, such as these policies implemented in various places around the world. Adequately speak to their voters, these pro-life lawmakers, earn their trust and sufficiently assuage their concerns before they're trying, uh, then trying to lead public opinion that might be trailing behind what substantive justices require. Complete abortion abolition A ballot box referenda should thus be avoided for the time being for all but the very deepest of deep red states, state legislatures, and ideally the U.S. Congress should focus for the time being on legislating in this arena, not terribly far removed from their voters' desires. Now, this is painful to consider. The precise contours of a piece of legislation will depend on each specific state and each specific polity, not to mention the political and rhetorical skills of a given state legislator's or governor. Pro-lifers must remember that even though Lincoln abhorred slavery and lived just long enough to see the 13th Amendment passed through Congress, though not long enough to see it ratified, he was a moderate anti-slavery Republican in the truest sense of the term. His scruples were unshakable, but he appreciated the practical needs of incrementalism and, above all, prudence, which Aristotle considered to be the queen of the virtues and the statesman's defining trait. As Lincoln concluded his stirring second inaugural address, with malice toward none, with charity toward all, with firmness and the right as God gives us to see the right, let us strive on to finish the work we are in and to bind up the nation's wounds. And so pro-lifers now strive on to binding up the festering wounds of the now defunct Roe regime. Godspeed. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Hope you'll join us here tomorrow. And have a good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.